There was one more attorney that rounded out the odd and opinionated cast of characters in Powell's office. Harvey Zoll. He'd grown up in Tulare, and his extended family were well-known in the local poultry business. Like Powell, Zoll went to law school at Berkeley, and he passed the bar in the spring of 1963. We don't know a lot about his practice before he returned to Tulare County, but at some point, he worked for the California State Compensation Insurance Fund and was forced to resign to avoid being fired for using a government car on vacation. According to newspaper accounts, Zoll also studied at Oxford University and worked as a public defender in Monterey for 18 months. We do know that by May of 1976, he was working for Powell as a prosecutor because Judge Sullivan publicly chastised Zoll for failing to notify the court of a last-minute plea bargain and causing jurors to show up for a canceled trial. Sullivan told Zoll to let Powell know that he would not accept those pleas in the future. It was a rocky start with the court. By January 1977, most of the attorneys in the DA's office had quit and publicly called out Powell for gross incompetence and refusal to cooperate with defense attorneys in resolving cases. However, Zoll's star was on the rise in the office. Powell had asked the county to fund a new division within the DA's office specifically to handle consumer protection cases, and he named Zoll as the planned division head. Not only was Zoll going to prosecute consumer fraud, but he was also going to be put in charge of consumer education and investigating complaints. Blyer told the press that he had already sent Zoll to visit other DA's offices with similar units, and he was ready to start immediately. Blyer even invited citizens with consumer complaints to contact the office. However, in February, Zoll was still prosecuting criminal cases, including a brutal jail beating that the guards couldn't be bothered to stop. In March, the county refused Powell's funding request for the new unit, but Powell said Zoll would continue working on consumer complaints at least half-time. It appears that plan was short-lived. By late April, Lawrence Gamble was handling fraud and consumer protection for the DA's office, and Judge Silveria had publicly blasted Powell for sending terrible attorneys to handle cases in his court, Zoll's assignment. The judge said that the Tulare court was getting, quote, third-rate treatment from the DA's office, and that Powell's prosecutors were tardy, unprepared, failed to subpoena necessary witnesses, and left jurors waiting. By August, Zoll was working as a public defender. There was no mention of his sudden departure from Powell's office. In October 1977, Zoll took a new position with the recently formed California State Public Defender's Office. The mission of the agency was to handle complex death penalty appeal cases. In fact, that's exactly where Oscar's appeal was being handled when Zoll arrived in Sacramento. Zoll had one high-profile defense success. In 1985, his client's conviction was overturned and a new trial ordered because the defense attorney and prosecutor had been in an undisclosed personal relationship during the trial. The client had already been released pending the appeal, but the salacious nature of the affair garnered headlines and publicity for Zoll. In March of 1988, the governor appointed Zoll to head the public defender's office, and nobody had anything nice to say about the choice. Zoll had recently been demoted by his outgoing boss and was being forced out of his position. The governor's appointment of Zoll was seen as a slap in the face to the entire office. 
Unfortunately for Zoll, the position required Senate confirmation, and that meant a lot of public scrutiny. By October, five of the most experienced death penalty attorneys in the state had quit the office rather than work for Zoll. Death penalty appeals had ground to a halt, with 20 inmates on death row waiting for an attorney to be assigned to their case. Attorneys who had worked with Zoll called him petty, vindictive, and indecisive. Quote, he was at best workmanlike. He was a marginal deputy, said his former boss, adding, his productivity was low. He was one of the least likely choices to head the office. Zoll made it known that he was for the death penalty and refused to be assigned to any case that was appealing that sentence, which clearly ran counter to the mission of the office. The California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, the CACJ, an organization of 2,000 criminal defense attorneys, opened an investigation into Zoll in preparation for making a recommendation to the Senate at his confirmation hearing. The CACJ issued their report in December 1988, and it was scathing. They based it on four months of interviews with deputies and former employees who described Zoll as unable to take advice and make decisions, wasting taxpayers' money on vindictive disputes with his own staff and lacking commitment to the defense of death row inmates. The CACJ acknowledged that Zoll had strong support from the governor, who wanted to abolish the office, and saw Zoll as a means to that end. They had no doubt that Zoll was likely to be confirmed by the Senate, despite their advice. That report was followed by a letter from 20 attorneys within Zoll's office who opposed his confirmation. They said that, quote, Zoll is an orgy of retribution. He is light-mindedly divesting this office of the technique and expertise needed to get the actual work done. By the first week of February 1989, the Senate Rules Committee was considering Zoll's confirmation, and the opposition had become increasingly vocal. The vote had been delayed after the first hearing had raised issues that worried some of the committee members. One of the new voices against Zoll was Jay Powell. The governor had cited Zoll's time in Powell's office in support of the nomination, but Powell came forward to say that he had fired Zoll in 1977 and asked to submit written testimony to the committee so that they would know the full details before they voted on Zoll's confirmation. Zoll agreed that he'd been fired and described it as, quote, a falling out. In addition, some of the people on a list of supporters that Zoll had submitted did not, in fact, support his confirmation. That included an appeals court justice who'd said that he'd never even met Zoll. His prior misconduct of using a government car on vacation also came out. However, all of that paled next to Zoll's next action. He knowingly had forged letters presented to two members of the Senate Rules Committee. One of the forged letters was used by Zoll to try to convince the committee members that his opponents were part of a continuing conspiracy to keep the state public defender's office under the control of a certain faction, more liberal than Zoll. From the Sacramento Bee, February 8, 1989. Duke nominee resigns after forgery story. Quinn Denver, a Sacramento lawyer, said the alleged forgeries were attempts to discredit him and another critic of Zoll. 
Denver said one letter bore his name and the other was purportedly addressed to him. At a meeting in 1987, quote, Harvey agreed with me that these were totally false letters. Then, lo and behold, he or his minion was distributing them to members of the Rules Committee, telling them these were real letters, showing there was this conspiracy against Saul. And this story from the Daily Journal, February 7, 1989. Alleged forgeries seen threatening Saul confirmation. Quinn Denver said he agreed totally that they were forgeries. In a prior interview, Denver said Zoll even suggested names of the likely author. Now for him to turn around and distribute them as legitimate correspondence calls into question his integrity and the depths to which he will sink to get this confirmation, said Denver. To get some flavor of these letters, the letter from February 2nd, 1984 states, You and whomever you appoint to destroy the office of State Public Defender will not succeed in your reprehensible aims. I, through my own hard work, built that office, and I have taken ample measures to ensure it will survive. The phony letter concludes, I will enjoy watching the frustration which your puppet appointee will experience when he comes to realize he cannot undo what I have done. Sleazy politicians such as yourself don't have enough force to knock down stone walls. In the phony letter to Denver, dated February 2nd, 1987, supposedly Mark Cutler describes a possible campaign to discredit Demukian's appointee to two courts, including the state Supreme Court. At one point, the letter asks, Does a TV spot depicting a judge in a dunce cap standing in a corner with his F report card sound too fantastic? The forged letters were the final straw, and Zoll was forced to withdraw his nomination. After conferring with my family, I concluded it was not in the agency's best interest for me to continue to seek confirmation, he said. It was hardly a setback. In April of 1989, the governor appointed Zoll as an administrative law judge. On November 14, 1990, Zoll received a reproval from the California Bar, which is a form of discipline similar to a censure or rebuke. The bar found that his conduct regarding the presentation of the forged letters was, quote, improper. Zoll continued to have issues with his law license in the early 1990s and has not been eligible to practice since about that time. However, in June 2018, he was still publicly speaking for clients as their, quote, legal advisor. Yes, providing legal advice is literally the practice of law, and since he's faced prior bar discipline, it's a potential felony with three years in prison. So hopefully he stopped doing that by now. It's impossible to understand how vengeful, unprofessional, petty, and chaotic the Tulare DA's office was from 1974 to 1978 without really knowing Powell, Blyer, and Zoll. Most of the attorneys in the office had quit in disgust, and those that remained developed a siege mentality. Everyone outside of the office became the enemy and that included defendants, defense attorneys, judges, journalists, citizens, and even certain members of law enforcement. They seemed solely motivated by revenge and winning. Justice and the law were no longer part of the equation. Powell wanted to be appointed Superior Court Judge, or at least win re-election as DA, 
and it's easy to understand how much was at stake for him when Oscar's trial started in June of 1976. Orban's conviction and death sentence were just overturned in May, and losing another huge murder case was not an option for Powell's career. Knowing all of this, would anyone be surprised if Blyer, Zoll, and Powell suppressed evidence that pointed away from Oscar's guilt, proved his alibi, or attacked the credibility of Brumley, the Moscoros, or Laverne Lamb? No. Could they have ordered the destruction of the physical evidence to hide the truth? Yes, definitely. This brings us to 2019 and D.A. Ward's report to the California Attorney General. As we discussed before, that action was generated by our direct request to the AG for a State Department of Justice investigation into Oscar's conviction and D'Angelo's possible involvement as an active-duty police officer. AG Becerra assigned a deputy named Cliff to the case. Everything about Cliff's work seemed off to us. He didn't inform us or the Clifton family that he was working on the case or that he had assigned the review back to Tulare County. He didn't ask us any questions about the history of the conviction and did not request any documents from the defense files. Yet somehow he still claimed that he had completed his own review of the evidence and was satisfied by D.A. Ward's conviction integrity review and report. Cliff's decisions and actions were truly nonsensical. The Tulare DA's office had no conviction integrity unit and had never reviewed any case for actual innocence. Also, Oscar's conviction and appeals showed 40 years of prosecutorial misconduct within that office. Criminal destruction of the evidence and suppression by TCSO, close family relationships between TCSO and the DA's, and the new suspect had been an active duty police officer in the DA's jurisdiction. Those were the very reasons we had requested an independent DOJ review. Ward's office was simply not experienced or competent to conduct a CIR. They were fatally biased and had dozens of reasons to maintain Oscar's conviction, regardless of his innocence. Cliff had another assigned role. He was supposed to provide technical support to the CIR. That meant that he was in charge of collecting all case documents and making sure that the DA followed the correct standard for determining actual innocence. It was obvious that he had not done either of those things. Cliff later told us that he helped Ward put together the integrity unit, which was unbelievable since the unit was nothing more than regular employees of the DA's office. There was nobody representing the defense side or any outside forensic experts, the basics of any normal CIR team. It felt like a strange sham and cover-up, but that seemed too bizarre. Why would the AG's office want to cover for D'Angelo or the Tulare DA's office? After DA Ward sent his report to the Attorney General in January 2019, we received a letter from Cliff, the first contact we'd had since we requested the DOJ investigation five months earlier. He said that although he confirmed Ward's findings in Oscar's conviction, he could order an investigation if we showed that Ward had, quote, abused his discretion. That is a really high bar and requires a huge overreaching mistake or intentional misconduct. 
Obviously, a review for actual innocence should only be focused on whether or not the defendant committed the crime, not any procedural question. Although Cliff's responses were unusual, we still weren't overly concerned. The DNA reports from the state crime lab literally said the opposite of what Ward claimed. There was no semen on any of the items examined. The source of the weak male DNA was unknown. The alleles could not implicate Oscar or exculpate D'Angelo. And the critical test had accidentally been contaminated with male DNA in the lab. Those errors in Ward's report appeared to be intentional since there was no way to misunderstand the lab's findings. It was also obvious that Ward lied in his report about the documents he reviewed, including all of the grand jury trial and hearing transcripts. Those issues were more than enough to overturn Ward's findings and warrant an independent DOJ investigation. Easily, those are grotesque abuses of discretion. However, as we argued to Cliff, D.A. Ward's report far exceeded abuse of discretion. It was criminal. Prosecutors may not intentionally and in bad faith withhold relevant exculpatory information, knowing that it is material with the specific intent that it be concealed during an inquiry. To do so is a felony. Exculpatory means anything that tends to exonerate a defendant or helps establish his innocence. Obviously, D.A. Ward is aware of all of the evidence in the case, so failure to include it in his report is, by definition, intentional. Bad faith means a conscious decision by a prosecutor to conceal favorable evidence with knowledge that this evidence would exculpate the accused or impeach the credibility of a key prosecution witness. It is the intention by a prosecutor to commit a fraud on the process that would assist the California Attorney General in his mission to arrive at the truth. Generally, if the conduct violates the rules of professional conduct, that is evidence of bad faith. We covered this extensively in Episode 34. There is absolutely no question that D.A. Ward intended to lie and conceal the following relevant and material exculpatory evidence from the Attorney General. ABO testing on Blake's sample conclusively excluded Oscar. D.A. Ward not only failed to disclose those exculpatory lab results, but actually made up a lie and said in his report that, quote, the criminalist was unable to obtain a blood type for this particular semen. This is shockingly false and is positive proof of Ward's intentional bad faith suppression of exculpatory evidence in his official report to the California Attorney General, a clear felony. Mike Grubb's bench notes plainly state that he typed Blake's sample as type A and the lab even billed D.A. Powell for that exact same testing. Further, at grand jury, Grubb testified that he did, in fact, test Blake's sample, and it was type A. No other blood type was present. As we covered in episode 39, ADA Coolyard and Morton discussed, confirmed, and covered up Grubb's findings in 1985. 
of course da ward wants to hide this evidence either there was no semen present in blake's sample and his testimony was wrong donna's killer had type a blood or the killer was a non-secretor ward didn't want to discuss the lack of evidence of a sexual assault or the fact that d'angelo is blood type a and a non-secretor this testing also proves that bird knew that the evidence was exculpatory and explains his bad faith motive in having it destroyed blake's testimony at trial that he found quote semen on donna's pubic hair sample was not true he found acid phosphatase even in 1976 blake's statement was ridiculous junk science if an area tests positive for ap an additional examination for sperm cells was and is required that procedure was followed to the letter grubb personally picked up blake's sample slides and examined them microscopically he found no sperm cells on either side and only donna's own blood type a morton and grubb's testimony at trial was that every single item examined including oscar's clothing donna's clothing and the autopsy slides were all negative for sperm cells there was no live sperm no dead sperm no partial sperm cells there was nothing that was also dr miller's finding at autopsy which is 100 percent consistent with the lack of physical sexual assault. Morton also stated in writing that the pubic hair sample did not contain semen. The state crime lab examined the samples from Donna's scarf that was tied around her waist, the pubic hair slide, and one of her hairs found stuck on her upper thigh. Again, there were no sperm cells on any sample. D.A. Ward may not repeat Blake's incorrect testimony when the truth was conclusively determined and reported to him by both the Institute of Forensic Sciences and the Department of Justice, his own experts. Ward is knowingly repeating false information. We're willing to believe that Blake made a good faith mistake and truly thought that the only possible source of AP was seminal fluid he was wrong. He was still just a graduate student and had no qualifications as an expert. When Grubb examined Blake's slides, he found nematodes, a microscopic worm that lives in dirt. Nematodes are a particularly rich source of AP. There were two things that Blake had not been told. The dirt he thought had come from Donna's pubic hair had actually been removed from her skin and put in the same envelope, and her body had been sprayed with a phosphatase-based product when she was found. We can see that clot of dirt in the crime scene photos, and it is clearly covered in tree spray. The entire scene is covered in tree spray. It's dripping from every orange leaf and running down Donna's clothing. In addition to the spray and nematodes, there was urine, menstrual blood, and citrus peel, all well-known sources of acid phosphatase. Blake's correct testimony should have been that he identified AP in the sample he was given, but that further analysis failed to confirm that the source was semen. It's all a big, giant nothing. D.A. Ward knows it and continues to lie about it.
ABO testing on the hair found on Oscar's sweater established that it was not and could not have been Donna's hair. DNA testing of Oscar's knife proved that it was negative for Donna's DNA and any female DNA. Grubb's testing showed no blood, skin, fibers, hairs, or mud on the knife. Oscar's white painter's pants were not missing or worn during the homicide, as Powell told the jury. They were sitting in TCSO custody, but never logged into evidence. Plaster casts taken by Morton excluded Oscar's truck from the scene on Road 176, where TCSO claimed to have found Donna's underwear. Morton's bench notes and trial testimony were clear. He could not match the plaster cast to Oscar's truck. Everything in Ward's report about the tire tracks at that location is a flat-out lie. They were not matched to Oscar's truck or any of the other scenes. Period. Evidence shows that both of Donna's shoes, her underwear, and her pants were collected by the bike and at Neal Ranch and planted by TCSO. The camera used by TCSO at the scenes was found to be malfunctioning and had taken distorted images. Photos from that camera were the basis of Morton's tire and heel print analysis, making his opinion both unscientific and unreliable. None of that is disclosed in D.A. Ward's report to the AG. Ward also made up a very specific lie about Morton's opinion when he claimed that Morton identified specific makes of tires in exact locations that matched in both the tire tracks and on Oscar's truck. Nothing remotely like that ever happened. On the witness stand, Morton repeatedly stated that he could not identify any tire make or model from the tracks. He excluded the tracks at Road 176 as coming from Oscar's truck, and no complete sets were photographed at the bike scene or at Neil Ranch. Photos of tire and shoe prints taken near Donna's bike, her shoes, her underwear, and on Neil Ranch were not given to the defense or shown to the jury because they did not match Oscar's truck or his footwear. TCSO Johnson, Hensley, and King all testified that they were instructed to ignore those tracks and that many tire and shoe prints at the scenes appeared to belong to members of law enforcement. TCSO showed cropped photos to the jury that intentionally removed shoe and tire prints that showed someone else at the scenes and excluded Oscar. Morton testified that he was only given Oscar's boots and tires for comparison purposes. Several TCSO officers were photographed in cowboy boots near Donna's body, and dozens of trucks drove on Neal Ranch and at the bike scene every single day. None of those were examined or eliminated. The report from the specialty photo lab in San Diego was withheld from the defense and jury because the lab did not find a match between Oscar's cowboy boots and the heel print at Neal Ranch. Morton testified that he could not match the partial heel print photographed at Neal Ranch to the boots taken from Oscar's closet. In fact, Morton said that he could not even say whether the heel print was made by a boot or a shoe. Morton also testified that Oscar's boots had no blood, mud, or other evidence on them. The dirt found inside and under Oscar's truck did not match any of the crime scenes. Oscar's clothing and fingernails tested negative for blood, semen, and mud. None of Donna's hair, blood, skin, clothing fibers, or fingerprints were found in Oscar's truck or on his clothing or in his home. 
Donna's fingernail scrapings had no evidence that matched Oscar or his clothing. The report from the expert botanist was withheld from the defense and jury because he did not identify the leaf from Oscar's truck mirror as coming from an orange tree. Beth Brumley saw Oscar's photo in the newspaper with the caption, Murder Suspect, prior to picking him out of the photo lineup. During the photo lineup session, TCSO McKinney showed Brumley an evidence photo of Oscar's truck fatally tainting any later description or identification of the pickup truck she said she saw. Despite that, Brumley was still unable to identify Oscar's truck at trial. Beth Brumley gave multiple inconsistent statements regarding the time and location of her incident, making her an unreliable witness. Beth Brumley's testimony at trial was not true. The state conceded that Oscar was, in fact, by the Owens house at 3 p.m., not in Woodlake. Both of the Moscoros testified that the flasher's truck had a plain white tailgate, not the distinctive black-and-white Ford tailgate of Oscar's pickup. D.A. Ward not only withheld that information from the Attorney General, he lied and stated that the Moscoros had positively identified Oscar's truck. Gloria Mascoro was shown Oscar's photo by Sheriff Wiley the morning after Donna's bike was found, several days prior to her lineup identification of Oscar. The entire Mascoro family was employed by Donna's grandparents, and Wiley approached them while they were working on that property next to Donna's house. Gloria's identification was tainted and unreliable, and the jury should have considered whether or not the family felt pressured to sign statements presented to them by TCSO while at work for Donna's family. D.A. Powell told the jury that Donna was kidnapped in the Grove at 3.45 p.m. while she was actually at the Lee home, over four miles away. Rick Carter and Bill Irwin's first statements supported Oscar's alibi and agreed with all of the other witnesses, but were not heard by the jury. Rick Carter's third statement was obtained only after he was arrested, charged with murder, threatened with a death penalty, and jailed, methods that the Supreme Court has ruled are coercive and unconstitutional. Rick Carter's DUI charges were dropped in exchange for his testimony, and the defense and the jury were not informed. This is a constitutional violation per the Supreme Court ruling in Giglio. Rick Carter was a key prosecution witness at trial, because his changed statement gave Powell an extra 30 minutes to try to fit in the driving, the kidnapping, and the murder. However, there is not one word about Carter in Ward's report. Ward was required to tell the AG about Carter's critical role in the conviction and the exculpatory evidence that proved that his testimony was unreliable, coerced, coached, and bribed. Bill Irwin's original statement agreed with Frank Thomas and fully supported Oscar's alibi, and his second statement was a proven lie. Bill Irwin gave multiple inconsistent statements regarding the time he arrived on Garden Street and how long he remained there. He was an unreliable witness. 
Laverne Lamb was not a disinterested witness and was actually a close family member of the Lee Scroggin property where Donna was last seen. We can't stress enough how important this one single suppressed fact is to the question of actual innocence. By not disclosing this information to the defense, Bird, Powell, and Blyer withheld evidence that fatally impeached a key witness in the case, a huge Brady violation, and grounds to overturn the conviction. Laverne had a direct interest in diverting suspicion from the Lee Scroggin family, the most obvious suspects. It's far more likely that she received Donna's pants from a family member than randomly happened to find them in the dark, foggy road and guess that they were Donna's. And Laverne was in a position to be threatened and used by Bird if the pants were actually collected by Johnson at Neal Ranch and Bird needed a fake witness. We do not believe Laverne's testimony at trial, and we do not think that the jury would have believed her had they known the truth. ADA Alavezos is still asserting that Laverne's testimony proves that the clothing trail was left by Donna's killer no later than 5.45 p.m., on December 26, 1975. That fact is critical because the jury was told and apparently believed that the items led directly to Oscar's house and proved his guilt. The reason that the time is so important is that it was before Donna's bike and body were found. So if Laverne's testimony were true, it would make it impossible for TCSO to have planted the clothing trail to frame Oscar. But here is the thing, the only thing. It's highly unlikely that Laverne's testimony was true, and that changes the entire case. Remember that Laverne's trial testimony was littered with strange errors, like her description of driving from home instead of from work, and not being sure what road she was on when she found them even though she worked right there. Either she got the pants from a family member or from Bob Bird, and both of those point directly to Oscar's actual innocence. The jotter notepad photographed with Oscar's invoice book near Donna's bike did not belong to Oscar, and it did not come from inside his truck. It was exculpatory evidence that pointed to the presence of someone else at the bike scene and away from the idea that Oscar's invoice book accidentally fell out of his truck during a struggle. Ward did not mention the jotter notepad in his report. The wiping of fingerprints from Donna's bike, the invoice book, and the jotter notepad did not support the accidental dropping of items during a kidnapping. Three unidentified fingerprints were found on the passenger wing window and glove box in Oscar's truck. There were also hairs and fibers found on Donna's clothing and under her fingernails that did not match Oscar. All of that evidence was destroyed on Bird's order. The white paint transfer found on Donna's bike did not come from Oscar's truck, but it did match a police vehicle. A ski mask found at Neal Ranch appeared to match the one D'Angelo wore at the Snelling home, and it contained hairs that did not match Oscar. When Vasilia PD determined that the ransacker was Sacramento's East Area Rapist, TCSO Bird, Johnson, and Lovett illegally destroyed all of the physical evidence to prevent identification of the real killer. 
Sacramento Sheriff's Office had told Byrd about the MO of the first two EAR attacks in July 1976 and identified the EAR as a Type A non-secretor a couple weeks prior to the destruction. In April 2018, D'Angelo confessed to being the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker. Ward was fully aware of this confession and did not include it in his report eight months later. In November 2017, TCSO issued a press release that stated that the evidence showed that Donna and Jennifer Armour were killed by the same man. On July 11, 2018, TCSO named D'Angelo as a suspect in Jennifer's homicide. Warden Alavesos not only withheld that exculpatory police investigative finding from their report, they did not make the plea agreement with D'Angelo contingent upon his admission of Jennifer's homicide as an uncharged offense because it would have raised questions about Donna's homicide. D'Angelo was an active-duty Exeter police officer, lived between the Lee House and Neal Ranch, had the necessary training to stage the scenes, and is known to have used the specific M.O. of stealing items and planting them as false clues. Although Oscar's 1965 case was ruled inadmissible at trial, D.A. Ward made that about one-third of his report. Needless to say, even if Oscar had been guilty of the crime Ward outlined, it would have absolutely no relevance to a claim of factual innocence in Donna's murder. The cases were totally unrelated as to time, location, and victims, and the judge specifically found that the 1965 case did not share any MO points with Donna's kidnapping or homicide. The woman at the river was an adult, and there were no weapons or vehicles involved. There was no attempt to remove her clothing or sexual comments, and the investigating officers found no mask, saw no injuries, or had any other grounds to arrest Oscar at the scene. Ward's report left out two critical pieces of exculpatory evidence in the 1965 case, and he sought to intentionally mislead the Attorney General. By including that Oscar was identified at the river in the back of a TCSO car, Ward gave the false impression that Oscar was under arrest or arrested shortly after at the scene. Neither is true. Ward did not include the information that TCSO found no evidence of a crime and that Oscar left the river in his own car. It is so grossly misleading, it rises to the level of being an intentional lie. Ward left out the single most exculpatory detail about Oscar's actual arrest in the case. It was carried out by Bob Bird, who had no arrest warrant when he illegally entered Oscar's house days after the incident. In the ABC 10 special, Bird lied about making that arrest and confirmed that his Farmersville PD he had no reason to be anywhere near that case. ADA Alavesos told ABC 10 the exact same thing. Why are Bird, Ward, and Alavesos lying? Because it proves that TCSO saw no injuries, mask, or cause for arrest at the river scene, and that it was Bird's personal vendetta against Oscar that was the real cause for his arrest and prosecution in both cases. 
This evidence is exculpatory because it shows serious discrepancies between what the woman told TCSO at the scene, what the investigating officer saw, and the later typed statement that Byrd pressured the woman to sign at the DA's office. Byrd's lies mean that nothing he said in Donna's case can be trusted as true. His behavior impeaches his credibility. The suppressed interview tapes from key alibi witnesses Gerber, Trueblood, and Passioni are not mentioned or included as evidence in Ward's report. In fact, Ward again hid those witnesses and told the Attorney General that, quote, none of the men recalled seeing Oscar Clifton or his pickup truck. Once again, this is an intentional bad-faith lie about critical alibi evidence. Ward should be charged with a felony for just that one sentence. He seriously appears to think that his report to the Attorney General was some kind of semantics game, not an investigation into actual innocence, one he is required to undertake in good faith. It's sickening. None of the adults reported seeing Oscar and his truck but two boys clearly did. Ward is not allowed to hide critical exculpatory witnesses that support Oscar's alibi and innocence simply by using the word men. Although Mrs. Passione did not report seeing Oscar, Bird was careful not to ask her, and Ward should have disclosed that to the AG. She was also an important suppressed alibi witness because she placed the freezer loading after 3 p.m. Ward also withheld the circumstances of Ray Donahue's suspicious fatal accident only six hours before he was expected to testify the TCSO had not given him the interview transcripts of those three critical alibi witnesses. Additionally, Ward withheld his office's 1983 admission to the court that Donahue never heard the tapes was not made aware of their contents, and that Byrd had destroyed and suppressed the portions of Chamberlain's report that detailed his interviews with Gerber and Trueblood on June 22, 1976. Ward also failed to tell the AG that TCSO had refused to produce the interview tapes and transcripts of Byrd's questioning of Oscar after his arrest, questioning that occurred after Oscar invoked his right to counsel. Instead, Ward included in his report the statement that Oscar, quote, lied about his alibi. That was based on Byrd's hearsay testimony. Byrd's statement was contradicted by the other TCSO officers who were present and the facts of the case. The questioning was illegal, and the suppression of the interview tapes and use of hearsay statements were unconstitutional. Yet Ward still repeated the false information to the Attorney General. D.A. Ward knows, for a fact, that his statements to the Attorney General about Oscar's alibi are not true. This is the very definition of bad faith. Ward knows that he is concealing favorable evidence that would exculpate Oscar, and he is doing it to commit a fraud on the investigatory process. Ward knows that his failure to disclose this evidence to the Attorney General during an official investigation is a felony. Yet, he did it anyway. How bad is the real story of Oscar's conviction and D'Angelo's crimes in Tulare County when the DA is willing to commit a crime to cover them up? 
Every single fact we've discussed is exculpatory. It either proves Oscar's alibi, points the evidence directly away from Oscar, or casts serious doubts on the testimony of a state witness. All of this information was withheld from DA Ward's report. Not only is each piece of suppressed evidence its own serious Brady violation and enough to overturn Oscar's conviction, but taken together, they undermine every aspect of both the original conviction and DA Ward's report. The only thing that is true is the date that Donna was killed, 122675. More importantly, each time Ward and Alavesos withheld a piece of exculpatory information, they violated both the rules of professional conduct for attorneys and the California Penal Code. They were both unethical and criminal, over 30 times. We also feel that since Ward's report includes statements that are knowing lies, that someone in his office is guilty of perjury under Penal Code 118. That would include the DA's investigators that Ward claimed worked on the CIR and anyone else who held an investigatory role. So this is where we've had a complete and total break with our trust in California Attorney General Becerra, whose job it is to make sure that police and prosecutors don't abuse their authority, turn a blind eye to misconduct, or violate defendants' constitutional rights. His deputy, Cliff, told us that he'd reviewed all of the evidence in the case and that Ward did not exclude any exculpatory evidence from his integrity review and report. That is objectively false. Bizarrely false. There is no way that anyone could believe it, let alone a trained attorney with years of experience handling complex cases. We felt like we were talking to someone who was living in an alternate reality, a different universe where up is down and the sky is green. It turned out that we were kind of right. We were looking at the world through the lens of Powell's deputy, Harvey Zoll, and Harvey's son, Cliff. You've just heard part two of a special three-part series for episode 40. 